Well, as you guys are taking your seats, you can also open with me to Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. I've been thinking about this week how easy it is to sing and to say that Jesus is our King and yet not mean it one bit. I love the song that we just sang with everything because I don't think it's just Sounders fans, Seahawks fans, sports fans, uh, concert artist followers that get to shout and cheer for Jesus. Amen? And we get to, to sing to a king and shout and cheer for someone who has won. Like, there's no debate if Jesus is going to win. We're not going to the stadium hoping, really hope Jesus wins this time. <laughs> really hope he comes through in the clutch. I mean, the odds are kind of against him. I don't know. How much louder should our praises, should our shouts, should our singing be than sports fans, and then uh, people who sing at concerts as we are serving the one true king, the victor, Jesus Christ. Can I get something? Thank you. Yes. Now, I know that some of us come from, you know, Baptist and Lutheran and Presbyterian backgrounds, but I do really appreciate you shouting back at me. You want to give me an amen? If you want to raise up your fist and say, yes, I would appreciate that. Thank you, Stephanie. <laughs> okay, I, I don't want us to have this culture, this atmosphere in which it's kind of this dead, cold, man, like we're, we're together right now worshiping the king. We're going to talk about Jesus. This is, this is going to be great. <laughs> this is what we're doing. We're continuing our study through the gospel according to Mark, studying and along the lines of, who is Jesus? All the way up through the gospel according to Mark, we've tried, as we've studied certain passages and verses, to show who Jesus is. He is the Lord of the storm. He is the forgiver of sins. He is the son of man. He is the son of David. And this week, we'll see that Jesus is the Messiah King. Now, if you didn't grow up a church or not very familiar with um, the Bible, some of the stuff that was just read in, in verses 1 through 11 might seem a little weird to you. Uh, branches being laid down, uh, cloaks, coats being laid down as Jesus walks over them on a, on a donkey. People are shouting things like, Hosanna, blessed, David, kingdom, what's going on here? What Mark is showing and what this is a fulfillment of is, is a lot of prophecies. So hopefully, by God's grace, I'll, I'll show how Jesus is the fulfillment of uh, is the Messiah, how what happened in this passage, this story is as a fulfillment of Jesus coming in as the Messiah King. And hopefully by God's grace, we will see Jesus is our King, and we will love him and cherish him more deeply through this text. So let's pray along those lines, and, and let me pray again for us one more time. Father, I ask now that you would do a work in my heart that and our hearts, that you would stir our affections and our delight for you. Lord, that when we say, when we confess that you are king, when we see in the scriptures uh, you are lifted up as king, Father, that that would stir something up in us, that we would feel that, we would uh, cherish you as our king, that we would submit our lives to you as our king, that it wouldn't be just lip service, it wouldn't be, uh, we wouldn't be 
posers and, and phonies gathering together and confessing this and not really meaning it. Uh, Father, would your word be preached now with clarity and with conviction uh, to change lives, and, and may you be presented and held forth as the best. In your name I pray, amen. Uh, well, this passage here, uh, Mark, 1, Mark 11, 1 through 11, is, is oftentimes called the triumphal entry. Uh, this is the beginning of the, the Passion Week. All the way up to this point in the Gospel according to Mark, uh, Mark has covered about three years of Jesus' ministry. And he's done it in about 10 chapters. But from this point on, from 11 to 16, the last five chapters, Mark covers one week. So through this, Mark is trying to cue us into something that is, this is why Jesus came. This is why what is coming to Jerusalem is why he came, ultimately leading to his suffering and to his death. And, and Jesus, Mark spends a week with the next five chapters, zeroing in on ultimately what Jesus came to do. This is what I hope to unpack this morning is we're looking at, starting in verse 1, there's a crowd. A crowd has been following Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. They're coming near to, to Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Uh, this would have been a large crowd of, of followers of Jesus, but also a crowd that was just going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover festival. There had been a large group of pilgrims that would be heading this way to Jerusalem. This was one of the most important times for the Jews. Uh, this week, the, the Passover week, the Passover festival. If you don't know about Passover, again, you might not be very familiar with the Old Testament. Uh, the Passover, it comes, the celebration comes from remembering something that happened all the way back in the book of Exodus. And I'm going to kind of just give the highlights, give the uh, Sports Center update real quick on on what happened and in the Passover, what led up to it. But if you'd like to do some further study this week on the Passover, you can find it in Exodus chapter 1, um, 1 through 12. That kind of highlights the, uh, the Passover story. But it starts off by the, the Israelites, God's people, the Jews, were enslaved. They were oppressed by the Egyptians and by Pharaoh. Exodus t chapter 2, a guy by the name of Moses is born. And Moses is called to rescue and free his people from slavery in Exodus chapter 3 by something that you don't see all the time, a burning bush that's not getting consumed by the flames. Pretty crazy. He gets called from this bush to, to lead his people. He goes with his brother Aaron in Exodus chapter 7 to stand before Moses and say, God has called me to free my people. Let my people go. Pharaoh says, uh, I like the free labor. No. Why would I do that? Moses says, uh, you better listen to me because um, my God is the one true God. He is the all-powerful God, and bad things are going to start happening if you don't listen to me. And we have what's called the ten plagues. Some pretty crazy stuff that goes down. There are a, a plague. The first plague is water is turned to blood. The Nile River is turned to blood. All the fish die. The Bible says it reeks. You can imagine a river full of dead fish that's also blood. Yeah, that was just the first plague, okay? That's just the first one. Then frogs plague the whole country. Now, I've, maybe you like frog legs. I've never tried those, but frogs aren't the, the greatest to me. I wouldn't like to be, I mean, they're, the Bible talks about them all over, like everywhere. Then if that's not bad enough, there's gnats. Then after gnats comes the Egyptian livestock die. Then after that, there's boils. Like people get boils very painful. Then here comes hail. It crushes, it ruins all the crops. 
After hail, here come locusts. So any crops that weren't crushed by the hail, the locusts eat up. The ninth plague is darkness. Darkness covers all of Egypt. And then there's the last plague, the worst plague, the tenth plague, which every firstborn would die. I mean, even firstborn of cattle die. But God gives special instructions to his people and say, if you take a lamb, a spotless lamb, a perfect lamb, and you sacrifice it, and you take its blood, and you put it on the doorposts, when the Lord comes by to take the firstborn, he will pass over your house, and he will spare you. And this is, this is what the Jews would celebrate every year, the Passover. The Lord passed over their house because of the blood of the Lamb covered them and, and saved them from death. Because of this 10th plague, this horrible plague, it was the breaking point for Pharaoh. He finally said, you guys go, get out of here. So not only was the Passover festival a season of remembering the blood of the Lamb that covered, their, that covered the, the death, God coming over to, to kill them, but it also was a kind of a celebration and remembrance of them being freed from captivity and from slavery from the Egyptians. So this is, this is what's happening about this time. This is what's going down here, the, the celebration of the Passover festival. And as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem with this large crowd, he sends two of the disciples ahead with special instructions. Now, this is not the first time Jesus sent his disciples. He, he sent them two by two earlier in Mark chapter 6 to cast out demons and preach the gospel. This is, in fact, how Jesus works. He calls disciples into community, but he also sends disciples as a community. And as two by two, he calls them out and he says, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, uh, one which no one has ever sat. Now a colt is a foal of a donkey, be a young donkey, which one has, uh, no one has ever sat on and be worthy of a king. And Jesus says, untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And get this, they went away and found a colt tied at the outside of the street. They untied it. When some of them were standing and said to him, what are you doing? They told them what Jesus told them and they went and had the colt. And verse seven, they brought the colt to Jesus and then they threw their cloaks on it and sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches they had cut from the fields. Now all of this is, not something uh, we probably see today. We don't see people throw down their cloaks as the president drives by, um, our, our great rulers drive by, our, our, our you know, leafy branches. We don't really see that, but this would be something that, that people did for, for kings. Uh, this is what happened in the story in 2 Kings 9.13. Every man took his garment, put it under the bare steps, and blew the trumpet for him, Jehu is king. This is something that they did, kind of a sign of reverence, of, of divinity. Here comes the king. Let's put our cloaks in front of it. This is what they were doing to Jesus. But Jesus wasn't just any other king. He wasn't like just an, another, maybe a newer king that, that the Israelites were going to have. He is the long-awaited, expected king. He is the anticipated king. He is the Messiah king. And Jewish thought there was this, this, this man who would, who would rise up, who God would anoint. That's what the word Messiah means, anointed. Uh, it's where we get the word Christos, which is where we get the word Christ. Jesus Christ is what we're saying. Jesus is the anointed. Christ was not Jesus' last name. He wasn't Mr. Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ. We're saying Jesus is the Messiah. So it's a way of saying that. This Messiah, this anointed one, would, would right all that was wrong in the broken world. 
He would bring Israel back to greatness. He was going to be a prophet king, the Lord's king, the Lord's anointed, who would bring an everlasting kingdom, who would defeat the pagan rule and rulers and build and cleanse the temple and right all that was wrong and just establish Israel to, to greatness and a forever kingdom. This is what the Messiah would do. And this is what Mark has showed us Jesus doing throughout his gospel, throughout the story. Jesus is the Messiah. He's, he's doing messianic things. He's healing the sick. He's cleansing the temple. He, he comes riding in on a colt. This, even this is a prophecy. Zechariah 9.9. 9. It wasn't a mistake that Jesus came riding in on a colt. Jesus did not have some sort of fear of bigger animals. Jesus did not have a fear of horses, so he thought, okay, I'll just ride in on a donkey. That's not what was going down here. This is a fulfillment of the prophecy made to Zechariah. In Zechariah 9, 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Your king, righteous and having salvation is he, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is what Jesus is. He is the long-awaited, long-expected king. And as Jesus is coming in on the donkey, people start shouting things. They shout things like, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. I really want to shout that again this week. I don't want to overdo that though. It's like shouting Hosanna. What the people are doing, a large crowd. I mean, we've got a picture, Century Link here, right? You know, as the, the Seahawks are going or the other Sounders are going and they're going, Seattle. Sounders, right? This is what the crowd is. They're shouting, Hosanna. Blessed be the coming kingdom of our father David. And what that word Hosanna means is save now. It means save now. This is what the people are shouting. Save now, please, Jesus, save now. Hosanna. Blessed is your kingdom. They were shouting what was also found in Psalm 118. It's another thing that was commonly sung at the festival of the Passover. Passover, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a prayer of blessing for the messianic kingdom. And when, we, when the crowd is saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, what that means is that blessed is he who comes in the authority of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes representing the Lord. Wayne Grudem said in the Systematic Theology book, in a broader sense, the name of a person in the ancient world represented the person himself and therefore all of his character. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, what it means to pray in Jesus' name. It means that we pray based on Jesus' authority. And this is what they're saying. Blessed is he who comes representing God. Blessed is he who comes uh, from our father, David. See, this Messiah was going to come and, and set up an everlasting kingdom, but he was going to come through the lineage of their great king, David. So a promise that was made to David in 2 Samuel, when you die, I will raise up an offspring from you and he will set up this everlasting kingdom. That's what they're saying. Blessed is the coming king, David. Hosanna in the highest. And secondly, I think we see that Mark is trying to show us that Jesus is the exalted king. Jesus is worthy of all praise. Jesus is, is to be highly praised. We see that Jesus is not only the exalted king, he's not only the highly anticipated king, the expected king, but you could also might say that he is the unexpected king. He does unexpected things. So 
So try to picture this, this scene. It's a great crowd following Jesus to Jerusalem. He's riding in on a donkey. They're laying down their coats in front of him. They're laying down leafy branches. They're shouting Hosanna, this great crowd. They're coming into Jerusalem. And verse 11 just seems to like kill the mood, doesn't it? It says he entered Jerusalem, went into the temple, and he looked around at everything, but it was already late, and then he went out to Bethany. Seems kind of anticlimactic, doesn't it? The crowd shouting, what's going on here? This is the Messiah. He's coming into Jerusalem. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, walks into the temple, looks around, walks out. And you got to think if you're the crowd, okay, okay, Jesus, we think you're the Messiah. Let's, let's, let's take Jerusalem. Let's slaughter these Romans. Let's, let's bring Israel back to greatness. Hosanna, save us. Yes, Jesus, let's take the hill. Let's do it. And he walks in, looks around and walks out. Okay. What? Remember, too, this is Passover week. This is the week in which the people were remembering them being freed from Egyptian slavery. They're hoping, okay, Jesus, this is the guy. The Romans who rule over us, who domineer us, who are over us, this guy's coming. He's going to just slaughter them, man. He's, gonna, he's our political hero. He's going to restore us to greatness. Let's do this, Jesus. They expected him to come into Jerusalem to conquer the Roman Empire to purge the pagan rulers, to free them from Roman domination, to bring Israel back to the glories of King David. But in fact, Jesus doesn't do that. He comes to Jerusalem to suffer and die. He brings a different kind of salvation, an unexpected salvation. Jesus will save, but he will save people from a far worse enemy, something far more oppressive, something far more enslaving, namely sin, Satan, and death. Jesus is the unexpected king. He comes in and conquers and saves, not through a sword drawn on a white horse, slaughtering people, like one of those great war movies. He's going to do that, but not this time. Thanks, Kara. Yeah. Let's do it. I'm waiting for that time. He comes in on a donkey. He comes in as a humble servant to suffer and die. He comes in not to slaughter enemies, but to be slaughtered by his enemy. Jesus is the king that humbled himself. The Bible talks about Jesus as he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself. Jesus had every right to stay up on his throne and, and kind of rule off from a distance, but Jesus is not that kind of king. He came down to earth. He got his hands dirty. He became one of us. He took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man. And as a human, he humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He didn't just get his hands and feet dirty. He got his hands and feet nailed to a cross. That's what our king did. He didn't stay detached. He wasn't just exalted in the praise of the crowd, but he was exalted on the cross as they lifted him up on the hill. He was lifted up on the cross. And in one of the greatest acts of love ever, he stayed there. 
Jesus had every right, every power to just say the word and obliterate everyone. And whoop, see you guys, I'm done with this. That throne in heaven seems a lot more comfortable. He stayed on the cross, he died. Jesus is the only king who died for his people, who sacrificed for his people, who satisfied the infinite demands of God, the, the wrath of God, because he was God. Didn't just represent God, he was God. This is, this is what verse 11 is pointing to. It might seem really insignificant, it might seem anticlimactic, yet it's another pointer that Mark is trying to get us to see that Jesus is the Messiah. Because this is a fulfillment of Malachi 3.1. Malachi 3.1 goes something like this. The Lord whom you will seek will suddenly come into his temple. When Jesus comes to the temple, he doesn't come in as a tourist, right? Like, oh, wow, look what you guys did to the place. I love all the gold, the design. Wow, this looks great. Jesus did not come to the temple as a pilgrim. He did not come to make a sacrifice. He did not come with prayers. Jesus walks into the temple here in verse 11 as God, as Lord. Jesus is the divine king. And he's not only going to set up an everlasting kingdom, but he is the everlasting king. Death, Satan, sin will not hold him. He conquered those. And as he's sitting on his throne right now, no one is going to get him off of it. No one's going to conquer Jesus. There's not some sleeper that's being trained right now that is one day going to conquer Jesus. There's not some uh, kingdom that is kind of growing and gaining traction and one day will overthrow King Jesus. Jesus is king over everything. He died, he rose again, and right now he is sitting on his throne over everything. Nothing's going to hold him back. Nothing's going to stop him. Nothing's going to frustrate him. Jesus is the everlasting king. No one's going to take him off his throne. I was convicted this week how oftentimes I, I kind of I have an attitude and a behavior of a loser. Like there's oftentimes I, I feel like a loser because maybe I'm, I'm judging things based on, you know, well, our church isn't growing as fast as I want it to. Have you guys hang out with other pastor friends, but pastors are probably some of the worst guys at this too. We can get so discouraged. Well, you know, this person didn't come this week. My church isn't growing as fast as I want it to. It's like, man, Jesus right now is on his throne. Why am I acting like a loser? I'm on the winning team, man. He already won. Why am I acting like a loser? What I love about Jesus, too, he not only forgives us and justifies us, but we get to share in his victory. This is why we're not losers. We get to share in that inheritance. Jesus not only forgives us of our sin, he not only rights every wrong, but he adopts us into his family. So that right now, if you are a disciple, if you have turned from yourself and trust in him, and you submit your life to the fact that Jesus is king, you are a son and daughter of the king. You feel that? You are a son and daughter of the king. That's what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, 
so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also you were heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This the, the seal, the guarantee, the mark, that we get the Holy Spirit. We know this inheritance coming because, man, we got the Spirit. Holy Spirit is with us and helping us and advocating for us. I want us to think about this as, as uh, we look at this, this truth that Jesus is our King. That for many of us, especially if we're Christians, we might, this kind of might be lip service for us, but it might not functionally play out in our life, the fact that Jesus is our King. I want us to think about this question, who is your king? Meaning, who is ruling you? The reality is I think everyone wants a king. I think everyone wants freedom and an oppression. A freedom from oppression. Freedom from unhappiness, freedom from loneliness, a a rescue from insignificance. They want security and, and comfort. It's oftentimes the kings that we look to the kings that rule over us, security, comfort, uh, significance, family, career, I mean, you name it, you can make it a king. I think this is one of the reasons that our society is so infatuated and glorifies athletes and celebrities and movie stars. We want rescue from a feeling of inadequacy and insignificance, so we look to people who we feel like are significant. We look for security maybe in a, in, a, in a spouse. Deliver us from a feeling of insignificance or, or loneliness or incompleteness. We look for significance maybe in, in having a family and, and having kids. We hope for deliverance, security from earthly kings and ultimately we're going to be ruled over them. You're controlled by what you seek. Well, sooner or later, if you've not already found this, you will find that you seek control, if you seek approval of others, if you seek success, you will be controlled by those things. And Jesus is the only king that that will not use us and abuse us. Jesus is the only king that will outserve us more than we serve him. Jesus is the only king who will love us more than, than we can ever love him. Jesus is the best king. If you don't have Jesus as your king, I'd love to talk to you. What does it mean for Jesus to be your king? Jesus is, is, no one is better than Jesus. No one is, is the good king, the perfect king, the never-changing king, the ever-faithful king like Jesus. Do you know that king? Do you submit your life to him? If you are a disciple, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, Jesus is your king. This is, what, this is the reality of what you confess as a disciple. Your king is Jesus. Not, not self, not security, not money, not comfort. Jesus is your king. Now, as a disciple, you can't say that Jesus is my king and yet not have him rule over every aspect of your life. If Jesus is your king, that means everything in your life is submitted to his lordship. He is your master. Therefore, when it comes to uh, what you wear, what you spend money on, where you live, what you do, who your friends are, what your hobbies are, everything has to be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus.
He is our king. Have, I don't know how many of you guys have seen this. I haven't seen many of them lately, but that little bumper sticker that says, Jesus is my co-pilot. Have you ever seen that? That's just some of the worst theology ever. I mean, some of the worst theology you're going to find is on a bumper sticker, just if you didn't know that. But this phrase, Jesus is my co-pilot, totally misses what Christianity is about. Because the Bible says that Jesus is our king. He's not our co-pilot. Like, in this, if, if you're going to go with this illustration, this image, like, you were the pilot, you crashed and burned, Jesus is coming to rescue you. You have nothing to do with the direction of it now. Jesus is the pilot, and you're kind of in the back recovering from the burn. That's what happened. Jesus is not your co-pilot. He is your king. So what are some practical ways that, that this plays out in our life? Some practical ways, and if, if you say Jesus is if king, how should that affect the way that you live? And number one, I think that we should have a joyful and humble attitude. Joyful and humble attitude. It's scary if you've been a disciple for, for a little bit or for a long time, how easy it is to re- try to remove Jesus from his throne and kind of put yourself in, in the throne. To try to assert yourself as, as king, and it just honestly leads to what I call grumpiness. This, this illustration was, or this truth was, was really driven home. Uh, re- recently, a couple months ago, St- Stephanie and I uh, went down to Arkadelphia, Arkansas. We have some friends out there, uh, friends down there at Second Baptist Arkadelphia that, that support our work and, and uh, support our, our church plant and become kind of a family with them. So we went down there to, to kind of give them a recap on how things are going at the church. And the whole trip was awful, I mean, from my perspective. Like, on the plane ride there, um, it, was, it was our daughter Addison's first time on a plane. So that was a nightmare. Um, <laughs> She didn't sleep at all. The whole, the whole, there was a layover and there was two flights and, and then almost like as we were, it was it on the way to Chicago or to, to Arkadelphia, uh, you know how they give you sodas in the, in the plane and you put the soda right in front of the little uh, tray pocket cubby thing. Somehow Addison had leaped forward and stuck her hand through the can and, and cut her finger. So she was bleeding and, uh, on this plane, we're trying to find a bandage that there's nothing that's small enough, and she's screaming. We're in the back, you know. We're one of those that family, you know. We were them. <laughs> we were that family. She didn't sleep at all while we were there. Um, I got like three hours of sleep the Sunday before I was I was preaching at church, and and then as we leave, um, our flight out of Arkansas was delayed like two or three hours. So we missed our flight from Chicago to Seattle. So we had to stay an extra night in Chicago. And of course, I checked everything there. So I had, I just, I had my clothes and that was it. And I don't, we had like just enough breast milk to sustain Addison. So like, praise God for that. But as I was in Chicago, I, I was like so angry and so grumpy. I was just feeling, like, I deserve more than this. I really do. I don't, I mean, and here am I, I had a hotel, I had a place to, ra- to lay my head, I had food. I'm thinking I'm so down on myself because I had to wear the same outfit a second day. <laughs> and here's what my thought is. I deserve more than Jesus got. Jesus said, even the son of man does not have a place to lay his head. 
when Jesus is our king, there should not be a feeling of entitlement. I deserve this. I deserve to be treated better than Jesus was. There should be a joyful humility. Because the reality is, as a disciple, our understanding is what we deserved is not a change of clothes, is not to make our flight and have everyone kind of comfort us and pamper us. What we deserved was death. That's it. We don't deserve the houses that we have. We don't deserve the clothes that we wear. We don't deserve um, the happiness that we enjoy. We don't deserve the cars that we drive. And yet it's so subtle how that kind of sneaks in that mentality of, I earned this. I deserve this. I worked hard for this. I, I'm owed this. There's a song that we sing a lot of times here at, at the church, uh, which goes, it's your breath and our lungs, so we pour out our praise. How often do you think about the air that you breathe as a gift? Gift. 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 I mean, how easy is that to forget? I'm entitled this air. I earned this. And you know what? Jesus owns that. This past week, Stephanie and I watched the movie The Martian. And you guys seen that movie with Matt Damon? Yes. It's a movie in which there, it's kind of, it describes a guy who lives on Mars for a couple of years, isn't it? Or maybe a year. And he kind of jokes about, you know, as he's the first person on Mars and he grows these potatoes on Mars, that he colonized Mars. It's just kind of, he jokes about that. He jokes that he's kind of the pirate. He colonized Mars. And I was just thinking about that, like, Jesus didn't colonize any island. He didn't conquer any island. Like, he created it. You can't claim something that's not already Jesus's. You can't go to Mars and put the American flag or, or whatever and say, this is ours now. Nope. That's Jesus's, actually. Jesus created that. Jesus owns that. He's the king over it. When Jesus is our king, we should have this, this humble, joyful attitude. We should treat the things that he has given us, each treasure, each moment, each talent, each treasure is a gift to be used for the king's purposes. If Jesus is your king, you understand that each breath, each moment, each talent, each treasure are gifts from the king that he has given you for his purposes, for the kingdom. So our lives are supposed to be demonstrating Secondly, I think it should lead to, to joyful witness, gospel witness. If Jesus really is our king, then we can't, I mean, I think it would be a shame to be silent about that. If we really believe that Jesus is the best, that he is the gracious, the, the patient, the best king that could ever rule over your life, then we would talk about it. We would share it. We would compassionately love others and say, man, this king that's ruling over you, this money or this disapproval of others, this success, this, this strife for significance, your fight for having a good career or a good family or a good house, it's going to crush you, man. Have Jesus. He's way better than that. Jesus is better than that. If Jesus is our king and we, and we believe that, we're going to be talking about it. 
That's just the natural overflow. So this morning, as we move into communion, as we move into a response, I said we reflect on that. When we say Jesus is our king, do we really mean it? Does our life demonstrate that reality? Is Jesus really our king? Is it just lip service? Or is it clearly demonstrated in our life? What we do, what we spend our money on, who we hang out with, the things that interest us, the things that excite us. When we come and gather here, is this something that, that rocks your world, that gets you super excited, or are you more excited to go watch the Seahawks, watch the Sounders? Are you more excited to go play video games? Are you more excited about that, that great steak that you're going to make for lunch? Is it Jesus? Is Jesus your king? Is he functionally your king of the life? People of the king are regularly asking themselves, how can I best use what the king has given me to make much of him? People of the king are leveraging their words, their abilities, their time, their families, their money to honor the king, to praise the king, and glorify the king. I ask that we do that now as a family. Let's pray.